Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Litz is a clinical psychologist and professor in the departments of psychiatry and psychological and brain sciences, and is also the director of the Mental Health Corps of the Massachusetts Veterans Epidemiological Research and Information Center at the VA Boston Healthcare System. Dr. Litz is internationally recognized as an expert on PTSD, military trauma, and the early intervention and treatment of trauma, traumatic loss, and moral injury. Dr. Litz's recent work entails the development and validation of a new measure of moral injury as a multidimensional outcome and conducting a VA-funded multi-site clinical trial testing and expanded version of adaptive disclosure on veterans with PTSD. Adaptive disclosure is a flexible, multidimensional psychotherapy that employs different strategies to target threat-based, loss-related, and moral injury-related trauma. Dr. Litz has over 370 peer-reviewed publications and is a fellow of the Association of Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, the American Psychopathological Association, and the Association for Psychological Science. All right, Dr. Brett Litz, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I am very well, thanks. Dr. Litz, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today. Adaptive disclosure is an intervention that I came across in the course of my work with veterans of the Canadian military, many of whom have served in Afghanistan or some of the other theaters that the Canadian military has been involved in from a peacekeeping perspective, such as Rwanda, uh, Bosnia. While, of course, in, the, in working with this population, you, you definitely come across trauma perpetuated by traumatic loss or imminent threat to one's life. What I've been struck by and really continue to be struck by in working with these populations has been the real pervasiveness and severity of trauma precipitated by what has been coined moral injury that's experienced both during and after their experience in theater. Uh, Adaptive disclosure is an evidence-based psychotherapy for helping to heal moral injury, and I'm really hoping our conversation today acts as a springboard to alert clinicians to this intervention and to hopefully consider integrating this into their toolkit. So again, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Litz. I really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so just to start off, so with an adaptive disclosure, you discuss some of the nuances involved in conceptualizing and treating operational stress injuries among military personnel. Uh, Dr. Litz, in your experience, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that clinicians unfamiliar with this population might harbor, and how could this ultimately impact upon treatment? With respect to clinicians who are not used to treating, let's say, PTSD or war trauma or that they don't know much about the military culture, the war ethos and modern warfare and et cetera. I think the misconception, and I think this is both, it's also in the media and among family members and veterans, is that PTSD is kind of a, uh, a the result of an intense, frightening experience. It used to be an anxiety disorder. And, and when it was prior to DSM-5, so in DSM-4, and before, when it was an anxiety disorder, it was it was completely conceptualized as a disorder of basically toxic levels of fear and overactive fear circuitry. And that still pervades thinking about why trauma is damaging, which is that it affects fear circuitry and it generalizes to other environments and you're hypervigilant and you avoid things and et cetera. And I think that those who may be naive to the military culture or treating service members and veterans and such, they may assume that and fail to appreciate that in the operational culture, and it's really no different in, in police, firefighters to a degree, et cetera, 
really a threat, life threat. There's a, a degree of preparation for roles and training and surviving life threat is, is a source of pride uh, for many. And it's not to say that you, that stress and fear doesn't happen, but it occurs in an occupational context and training and preparation means a lot and also support afterwards. Let's say you're jittery or you're not in the right frame of mind, you get support about that. So what folks fail to appreciate is that what's far more harming and lasting in a lasting way is traumatic loss of people that you love. And it would be easy for people to relate to that if they lost someone they loved in their family to violence. Think about how you get over that. And really there's no getting over that. It's your change forever. But traumatic loss, it raises the specter of a, a, a really unique form of guilt that is, that is profound. And what folks need to appreciate is that responsibility taking in, in a unit in the military is a moral priority and it is a sacred thing. And it's what you would do. It's analogous to, you know, team members and sports it's it has that kind of flavor where you're part of a team and you care for and are feel responsible for you know the safety and success of your team member members but it's not dissimilar to a family where i feel responsible unwaveringly for the safety and well-being of my daughter and and there's no getting around that and i think what many ptsd therapists fail to appreciate and certainly people who may be naive about military trauma and such, is that they assume that there's something valuable about responsibility. It's sort of like saying, and clinicians will sort of think this, is sort of like saying, yes, but. So yes, you took, you know, you have responsibility for your unit members, and yes, this hurts, and yes, you feel guilty, but, you know, fog of war and all sorts of explanations that in, in the hopes that someone can shift their thinking about something that's sacred and immutable, which is responsibility taking. And the alternative, and this is a theme of adaptive disclosure, is that our approach is yes and. So the yes, we, we feel no need, and, and really you look kind of foolish if you try to buck the reality of people's experience. So responsibility, you know, even if you weren't there, <laughs> and that's really a dynamic. Let's, let's say a friend of yours that you love, these are love relationships, dies due to violence, et cetera, and you weren't even there, but you find out about it, you still feel that degree of responsibility and you have what, what is termed survivor guilt about it. So that's, we treat that as an immutable existential reality. Then the question is, what do you do about it? It's yes, and, you know, how do you heal and repair that? So that's one aspect. The other aspect that people don't appreciate, which I think most interests you in light of what you were saying in your preamble, is that people can be harmed by crises of conscience. And service in the military or service in the police department or the fire department, it is, uh, there, are, there are moral responsibilities and, and there are moral challenges and right and wrong comes to 
play far more acutely and intensely than in our daily lives, but in our daily lives, right and wrong also comes into play. And I think that's something I would want people who aren't familiar with the military culture or treating PTSD and even standard PTSD clinicians to appreciate is that there's nothing special per se about the military with respect to this idea of moral injury, which is you know, lasting harm from events that transgress deeply held beliefs. We all, it, it's part of the human condition that where we, we can fail somebody that we care for and it's a high stakes kind of context or we could be betrayed horribly. This affects us and affects our sense of safety and comfort with others and our comfort with ourselves. So moral injury is the recognition that service members and veterans can be lastingly harmed by decisions they make or fail to make or mistakes made or horrible decisions or events that occur that, that go against their deeply held beliefs about right and wrong. And the damage is something that we try to address in adaptive disclosure. Uh, and I suppose we could talk about. No, I absolutely want to dig in on how adaptive disclosure has that very specific lens on uh, on moral injury. I just want to hang out on moral injury just for for one more moment. I think traumatic loss and acute risk of death are, are phenomenon that many clinicians who work with trauma will be familiar with. They know the signs and symptoms, if I can say it that way. Moral injury sometimes is more subtle, kind of more baked in, maybe operating in the background, in my experience. Dr. Litz, in your experience, what are some of the more uh, maybe subtle or overt signs that a client might be affected by a moral injury? How's that going to manifest in day-to-day life from a clinician's perspective? So that's a great question. Um, the thing to appreciate is that any high magnitude life experience that is kind of shocking and um, inconsistent with your expectations about what should happen in your life is haunting. So people who experience a morally injurious uh, event are going to be haunted by it. That is, they're going to intrusively think about it. They may have nightmares about it. So it's, it's very similar to this PTSD idea of having nightmares and intrusive thoughts, et cetera. So that, there's a core sort of PTSD-ness to moral injury where you, you will be haunted and, in, and, and um, it'll invade your consciousness when you don't want it to because it's painful. So that's important to appreciate. The other overlapping feature with PTSD is that people are going to be motivated to avoid thinking and feeling those things because it's painful and avoid situations that remind them of this thing that's painful. So that's a, a parallel with PTSD. And then there are the, the really uh, potentially profound social impacts of things that people do that transgress their values or bearing witness to intensely, intense moral compromising situations. And it's important to distinguish. So moral injury is certainly a general catch term, but it really has two varieties. And, and the, the symptoms and signs of the problems that may be clinically present depend on the type of experience you have. And here's a, a somewhat of a kind of a shared mythology uh, in the community of care providers and in the media for sure is that moral injury really occurs because of atrocities. So horrific, illegal, 
immoral acts of unnecessary violence and illegal violence, uh, which an atrocity would be in the war zone. And certainly if that occurred, that is in the category of a more, what we call a moral injury self. It's a, an act of personal perpetration. But these, these atrocious acts are very rare, but it's created this caricature understanding of what moral injury is, which is that you, you know, you've like thinking in the States, it's usually thinking about what Vietnam was and apocalypse now, and, you know, really bad acts of murder. And, you know, it's really kind of caricaturized and not accurate. And it, and it, it's a disservice really to people suffering from not those things, but there are other things you could do that, or fail to do that compromise your moral belief system and could be haunting. It, you could make a mistake and someone dies. You know, how do you get your head around that? Or you could, you could fail to do something and fail to take action to protect a civilian, for example, and be haunted by that. So the big variety of, uh, of or category, subcategory of moral injury is moral injury self. And then there's the, the most common type of experience, which is what we call moral injury other, which these are the experiences in which you are, you bear witness to events of, of individuals or groups. I mean, peacekeeping is a great example where you have to bear witness to intense um, destruction and grotesque injury of people that you can't help. And um, so that has a different kind of impact. You didn't do it, but the, another sub variety or a related idea of moral injury other is being betrayed by people you trust. And if you think about the human condition and, and your, your own life, or all of our lives, betrayal is a very intensely experienced thing and it can be very effective and, and color experience. So the core commonality are, are these PTSD-like symptoms of haunting and avoidance and the social impacts, which are disinterest and detachment and restricted range of affect. The sub-varieties have their own thing and the, the, their own type of symptoms. And uh, probably the best thing to just summarize it all is to say that, that there are different moral emotions associated with those two broad types of injuries. Mor moral injury self is associated with the moral emotion of shame. Shame has a, a lot of downstream behavioral and um, psychological impacts. You know, just think about what shame leads people to do. They retreat, uh, feel bad about themselves, feel like an other rather than an in-group, feel like an outsider, a pariah. They may feel like they deserve to suffer, those kinds of things. So that's from the moral injury self. It's, a, it's the core thing to appreciate is that it's driven by the moral emotion of shame. The mor moral injury other, which again is the most common presentation, it's the most common sort of injury, if you will, of, of um, service members. In fact, it's so common that it sort of colors, even if someone presents to a v VA or your veterans affairs clinics um, 
and they say that their worst experience, you know, the thing that they're having nightmares about or whatever is uh, a, a legitimate scary thing. And they can't, you know, they can't drive their car or they can't get out of their house. They're just really super panically level frightened. It's, it's nearly 100% likely that what colors that and what colors their experience is some degree of dissatisfaction and betrayal about the system that put them in that situation or their care and their benefits. And so they're, they sacrifice for their country. They're supposed to be taken care of and recognized for their sacrifice. And when those things don't come into place, it colors experience. But to try to characterize, getting back to your question, someone who whose sort of primary problem is moral injury related to other, you know, someone else's transgression. The core emotion is anger. And um, anger is about uh, a, a frustration with not getting a need met. And anger is a, a moral emotion, just like shame is a moral emotion. Um, it's about someone's perception of right and wrong. And so anger as the core emotion leads to a bunch of behavioral things, irritability, uh, suspicion, distrust, a, a kind of giving up, a what we call externalizing stance, which is like, it's not my problem. It's, you know, I got screwed. And moral injury other is the hardest thing to treat. And we might get into this, but if you experience shame from something you did and you're contrite and you're, you feel awful about it, there are things that you can do in the world to do good and counterbalance that. But if you experience moral injury other, and you and let's say it's a, a classic sort of high stakes betrayal by a leader and somebody dies, which is one of the worst things that could happen because of the, you know, trust in leadership is key to a functioning military. So if that happens and, and you are, consumed with anger and irritability and, and distrust, yet you live in a world that is, let's say you don't have a lot of money and you live in a, a poor community and there's crime. It, it may be hard for you to reset the, the, the scales of goodness and badness in the world because you continue to see injustice and badness. So we might get into that, but that's this is one of our big challenges. And it's not just a psychological challenge. It's not just a therapy challenge. This is a public health challenge. So much amazing information in there. Thank you so much for laying all that out. Amazing. I'm not sure if you'll want to describe what adaptive disclosure is to answer this question, but I'm wondering what gap that you and your colleagues saw in the current treatment landscape that led to the development of adaptive disclosure. And again, you may want to speak to what adaptive disclosure is to speak to that, but yeah, I'm really wondering how, how you were led to this particular uh, intervention. Sure. Well, I, I was uh, fortunate and lucky. Really kind of boils down to that. I was in kind of in the right place at the right time. And the, the benefactor of adaptive disclosure is someone named Bill Nash, excuse me, who's a psychiatrist. And at the time he was a Navy captain and we formed a friendship and a collaboration. And Bill, who's a expert about military stress and trauma and worked in the Marine Corps, he asked me to think about um, applying for some money that the Navy had to support the Marine Corps in resilience 
which was a big kind of, you know, legitimate uh, area to, to work in and to, you know, build resilience. And, and so it, it, it sort of morphed into, you know, what could, how, what could I bring to bear? And I had been thinking along with Bill for years about moral injury and traumatic loss and, and certainly uh, had some degree of frustration with existing treatments for PTSD, which, which centers on the idea that there is a fear that's conditioned that you could address with what are known, known as extinction-based approaches or, or uh, creating a safe context for the person and helping them gain mastery, but overcoming their fear ostensibly. Or the idea, uh, an idea that trauma wrecks people's lives because, of, because you're victimized and it colors the way you think and targeting the way you think is a way to help people. And so um, I, it was easy enough because I had been working, had been working in doing military field research since, you know, geez, I, um, like the Somalia peacekeeping operation and the Bosnia. So years, I, I've been doing a lot of work in the military and I've come to appreciate how unique the culture is, how important unit relationships are, how critical training and preparation is and, um, and how healing and repairing happens indigenously in that culture, in that context. And, and in a sense, how there are so many opportunities typically to, to get, to extinguish your fears because you're in, let's say you're in theater, you, you, it's, it's likely that you're gonna go out again. So, and, and, and get support for that. And so I, I, I just uh, came to appreciate that the therapies um, did not sufficiently nor flexibly address what I thought, still think, are the big sources of lasting impairment and suffering in service members and veterans, which is traumatic loss and moral injury. So to make a long story short, uh, we got some funding to create, and we just label it an adaptive disclosure because it seemed like, you know, it is it is adaptive to disclose. And we, we did promote disclosure in the therapy, which I'll describe. But at, at the heart of it is this idea that the approach is flexible. So we don't use the same change agent for anybody who presents because they have PTSD. The idea, and we, we piloted it on Marines. So we were, we were doing it in that world. We had support, financial support to do a, to generate a manual and the manual became a book. So it's published by Guilford. It's, there's a book on adaptive disclosure that came from the DOD funding from the Navy, which I greatly appreciate. And I greatly appreciate Bill's, you know, mentorship and support for the work. And so the, the, it's a flexible approach. And so we don't treat traumatic loss like we would a fear-based problem or, and we, we address moral injury differently. So that, that's a fundamental core idea of adaptive disclosure. Another core idea is that it is um, often put it that way, counterproductive, if not ethically challenged to treat someone as if you're going to cure them, as if somehow they're, that this, these awful things that happen to them will not have a, a lifelong impact and, and, will, and will not shape their lives and, 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 and because damage has been done and it, you can't eradicate it 
So we, we never had this idea of cure, but more planting healing seeds, setting someone up to do things indigenously in, in their in the case of the original pilot, which was do indigenous things in your unit and with uh, a leader you uh, care for or feels like who loves you, you know? And that really was our idea. We weren't thinking that we would be what they call the military wizards and just go in and, and we, we got this, we have the solution for you. You're good to go. No, it was really like setting the stage for indigenous functional change uh and that was the hope and so do you want me to go on with about about the therapy or is that too specific no that would be fine yeah i'd I'd love to know whatever else you might want to add just around like sort of the underlying ideas of adaptive disclosure and then i was going to ask you maybe to outline maybe a core intervention or two just so people can get a flavor for the kind of things that happen within the course of therapy well that's where i was going to go so so i'm with you perfect we're on the page although i should say we, as a group who've been doing this work, we have learned things. We learned from the pilot. We learned from a clinical trial we did. I've learned a tremendous amount from supervising cases and hearing about, about the actual treatment and, and conceptualizing these cases. So we have grown in the approach. So now we have something that we call Adaptive Ex- Ex- Disclosure Enhance or ADE. And I could share how we have grown from what we've learned, but the basics, uh, for those who get the book, if that that's what they use to understand adaptive disclosure, I'll say a couple things about what's in the book. Um, bear in mind that it was never our intention, nor is it now, for people to go and just say, "Oh, you have PTSD. I'm going to use adaptive disclosure per se." It, what, what we really wanted to accomplish with the book is to teach and help clinicians learn about the military culture and the warrior ethos and the unique needs uh, and strengths of service members and their environments. Um, we wanted them to um, think about moral injury and understand it and think about traumatic loss differently. And there's a set of tools which I'll describe, which I would be happy if people just sort of like, okay, they do a certain type of therapy and that's their comfort zone or that's what they've been trained in. If, if the book helped them conceptualize their cases and maybe there's a couple change agents they may apply because it resonates with their conceptualization. So that's really mission accomplished. And I do think that therapists in your VA and my VA and in the DOD would benefit from kind of a non-doctrinaire kind of flexible way of thinking about their cases and a set of tools to deal with moral injury and, and traumatic loss that may be different from what, you know, what they may have in their toolkit. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, great. So the, the other key sort of original change agents in adaptive disclosure in the book was this idea that we would go with this, this, we would use exposure, which is basically narration, therapeutic narration of an experience that is the worst and most currently distressing. And, but we wouldn't use it as a, you know, in, in exposure therapy, for those who know about exposure therapy, really you, you just do exposure in the hopes that someone might reduce their negative affect and do in vivo work to, 
approach things that they've been avoiding because of fear, et cetera. And, and you do hope for some degree of extinction of fear. It's not the intention of adapt, adaptive disclosure. We, we use narration as a means to help a, a service member or veteran um, kind of get into a poignant state and um, focus on and emotionally process this thing that happened to them in a way that could reveal things that they haven't thought about, maybe even new aspects of the memory because they, you know, they haven't had a chance, they haven't allowed themselves or they haven't had a compassionate person who cares in a private environment to share it in. So it's, it's an important kind of milestone to do that, but we don't use it as that's sufficient. It's really a means to an end of, and this is a core idea in adaptive disclosure, which is not that different than cognitive therapy to a degree, which is that we, what we want to get at is the meaning and implication of this thing that happened. Because that would be the, fo the subsequent focus of the work, which is that what is the legacy of this experience? How, how, does, how has it played out in terms of how you feel about yourself, your identity, your comfort with others, how you feel, how, your perceptions of the world, your capacity to do your job, and your other aspects of functioning, you know, your relationships, your close relationships, et cetera. So that's a feature of adaptive disclosure. And then the thing that is particularly unique is that in the original model, we use this narration exposure kind of framework to eventually have a, in the context of traumatic loss, in imagination, experientially and hopefully in a charged emotional way, if someone is suffering from uh, survivor guilt and it's the traumatic, uh, traumatic loss is the driver of their suffering and impairment and it dominates their consciousness, then we have them have an imaginal conversation with the person who died, who they loved. And that's, I think of all the things that we did, I think that was the most impactful um, because it, it's not that difficult to imagine what your best, one of your best friends who you love, what they would say about. And, and so the adaptive disclosure bit about traumatic loss is that we first have the person um, disclose, in a sense, confess what happened and its impact. And, and it'll be a story of, I feel crappy, I don't deserve to have a good life. I let you down. I miss you terribly. And I, I'm not okay with going on about my life. And, and I'm, I'm depressed. The other feature of adaptive disclosure that really, you might get some of that in all sorts of therapies about sort of revealing about the event, but the, the kicker, the sort of unique part of AD with respect to traumatic loss is that Eventually in the therapy, the, the, the dialogue, this therapeutic dialogue, experiential dialogue with the lost person moves to what, in your voice, what would the person who loves you, who loved you, want for you? And that's really a theme of adaptive disclosure. It's sort of, my idea was to get, you know, in a sense, therapists have to be experts or feign expertise, you know? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. <laughs> and yeah. because you want to you want to have some degree of power and influence and you want to have authority. And often people are not experts about that stuff, nor am I, because, I, you know, I, I didn't serve in the military. 
And um, I have some knowledge from my experience for sure, but still. So I wanted to get, I wanted to take, I wanted to sort of unburden therapists from this job of, of somehow tacitly being arbiters of truth or perception or implication of an experience. And I really wanted to put it in the voice of the patient. So with, so the patient's eyes are closed and the therapist is just there as a compassionate, reflective guiding presence may direct some of the stuff to make it as therapeutic as possible, but it's in the voice of the person talking with, you know, it's very intimate and, and that helps therapists to, to just chill, you know, and observe and experience um, and understand rather than think in their back of their minds, Oh, what am I going to say? You know? And so that helps therapists a lot. Um, it also helps patients because you don't get in the way <laughs> in a way. So that's a feature. And the hope there with adaptive disclosure is that is sort of jarring and jolting and like, Oh my God, I, I will let my friend down if I lead a crappy life and he or she really wants something from me that really what they want is for me to have a good life. And if, and if it was reversed, you know, I would be mad at them. So that's a, a, that's a core sort of change agent and adaptive disclosure for traumatic loss. Now getting to why I think you wanted to have this podcast is about moral injury. So the moral injury part is we have, so sort of the same structure, you know, narration, poignant, experiential, eyes closed. But you sh we shift to, uh, and we identify beforehand, a moral authority that the person, some, some person or agent or idea in the, in the person's life that embodied good, goodness and compassion and love for you. And so that, that can be quite difficult because, you know, at least in the U.S., I don't know about Canada, but really the 1% the serve, only 1% of the population. And um, a lot of that is not a kind of standard middle-class life. And there's a lot of adversity, if not trauma and unmet needs, et cetera. So, and a lot of people go into the military to get away from that. And, they, and that's, by the way, a, a source of at least moral distress for many is that what happens, and I don't know about your experience, but what happens is that young men and women go into the military because their lives aren't working. And there, there's some degree of hopelessness, like what, you know, what am I going to do? Work at a gas station. And I, I don't mean to be pejorative about it at all. And the military, the thing that, that, that I think people who aren't familiar uh, don't appreciate is that the military takes responsibility for making citizens and creating an, a, a sense of identity and purpose that will la last a lifetime. And I've had this, I've had major, you know, like Colonel level, Navy captain level people tell me that, that they pride themselves in, in you know, seeing that blossom and, uh, and it happens. So if you, if you develop this identity and a sense of purpose and pride and, and, and you're cared for and you care for others and it's predictable, when that culture and environment betrays you, that is particularly morally injurious. So I just wanted to, as an aside, say that because that's an important feature. But in any event, getting back to the moral authority. So it may be difficult for some, but, but um, it may be an idea. It could be Jesus. 
you know, but usually you'll get somebody like a coach, a teacher or a grandparent, et cetera. And the key is that the person loves you and you knew either knew that because they're dead or you know it because it's an idea like Jesus or whatever. Um, and they have compassion and a clear sense of right and wrong, that, that unambiguous morality. And so the, the, the therapeutic conversation about something that happened that you did or failed to do or someone else did or failed to do is with this moral authority. And there the, the, the therapeutic assumption, again, it's not the therapist reflecting and talking about that as if they're an authority. It's really someone who's in your life that is sort of present in that conversation. The assumption is that A, this person is disappointed in you or disappointed in, in, in that leader who made a terrible error. And that sets the stage for confirming what is true for the person, which is that they understand that it was a terrible thing that they did or a terrible thing someone else did. We, we never try to buck that, and but that's not it. So eventually after disclosing what happened and talking about its impact, you know, let's say it's a moral injury other and someone shares, I'm, I've become an angry son of a bitch. I'm, I'm not nice to my kids. I'm drinking too much. Uh, I don't just trust anybody. I don't like going to the grocery store, et cetera, et cetera. Then the idea is that they hear from this moral authority, what do they think about that? And in an ideal case, at least, and this requires some therapeutic kind of direction often from the therapist, is that it becomes a discourse, a, a dialogue about you, you have it in you to rebalance the scales and either to do things and be exposed to things that are good in the world or, well, it's just that actually, do things or be exposed to things that are good in the world because that transcends self or other healing. Uh, and we characterize that as a secular confession, which I think upset the non-secular world, but it was never intended to be a idea about Catholic confession or anything like that. But it is a, there is a confessional aspect to it. The last thing about the original model is that we, we had patients develop a plan for what they're going to do to heal and repair this thing you know, in their world. Again, it, it was all about, we were dealing with Marines who were going back to their unit. So that's the core of uh, the original AD model. Excellent. That's such a lovely overview. There's, uh, I, I wish we had four hours. There's so many things I would go back and loop back on, but I'll, I'll prioritize maybe this question. I mean, this isn't unique to working with uh, a military population, but it certainly comes up a lot where a lot of my clients are kind of, I would call like over-controlled, over-regulated. We'll talk about their experiences and it has very much the feel of a debrief of some kind. And they're used to delivering information in that kind of dispassionate, factual kind of way. And I think you alluded before to trying to have really sort of a conversation within the context of an activated affect, you know, to sort of get the juices flowing, if I can just say it in common parlance. How do you as a therapist or how do, does an adaptive uh, disclosure have something to say about getting those emotions activated so that change can occur while things are hot and molten? Yeah. I mean, that's the ideal to a degree. But I'll tell you, I'm, um, we have, I, I was alluding to how we've grown and we've learned. We've come to a place where, and the current model is called adaptive disclosure enhanced, is that we've, we've upped the ante on flexibility. And what we've come to appreciate is that this exposure part and the emotion part is not necessary if the goal is 
functional change. And that's our new goal. And we've shifted from, well, let's try to reduce PTSD symptoms. We, our goal, and we just, um, we're finishing a clinical trial in the States. It's a multi-site trial of veterans funded by the Rehabilitation Research and Development arm of the VA research. And um, there, the, the primary outcome is functioning, which it should be. Because if, if you have the frame of reference that any of us would be impacted for a lifetime because of these experiences, just think about your own experience, the real, I don't know, goal should be managing and coping, but doing things different in your life that that create environments that are, are supportive and helpful and, and help you rebalance the scales, basically, of goodness and badness. It's a lot of that. It's, it's do, promoting experiences that reclaim wellness and goodness um, and, and uh, support and expressions of love, really. So we've shifted to that. And if that's the aim, we are okay if someone has that style. You know, it's, 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 it's probably not worthwhile in a short-term therapy to think that you've got a magic, I don't know, set of, set of tools to get someone to, to like start crying and, you know, really emoting and to do this hot cognitive thing that we talk about in the book. I mean, sometimes they're, you know, in the current trial with this approach, we do conceptualize a case and we think this is going to be necessary for this person because they are, this, their functioning is impacted by this over-controlled thing that you're talking about. People aren't wanting to be around them. They're doing badly at work because they seem like a jerk and, or, you know, the people can't read them. It's affecting their functioning. So we might do some things to promote that um, to a degree, but we don't go crazy. And we don't get frustrated. So, so it might be worthwhile to me, for me to describe these adaptive disclosure enhanced and how we've expanded on ADE. Because for me, this is exciting. And I would urge anybody who listens to this to think about this in their practice too. So we have incorporated what we call compassion training, which is uh, loving, loving kindness meditation and mindfulness which is a standard standard sort of secular thing that's uh, kind of become part of a lot of psychotherapies um, and cognitive behavioral approaches, mostly mindfulness, not necessarily compassion, but compassion training is so essential if, if our goal is to rebalance the scales and help people function better. Because if you, if you have traumatic loss or moral injury, um, the scales are imbalanced in terms of your own goodness or badness, or you lost faith faith in your own humanity, or you've lost faith in humanity. And so if you've lost faith in your own humanity, you have lost compassion for yourself. And that's diff difficult to reclaim, but it's reclaimable. So we work on that. And loving kindness meditation, the sort of Buddhist practice is a beautiful, sim simple set of you know, strategies. And if, you, if you're suffering from moral injury other, you've lost faith in humanity. So you have a terribly difficult time being compassionate about the other, someone that you don't know. You know, in, in the States here, it's, it, if you think about it, it's very much the thing that drives the divisions in our country politically. People are treated as another and they're not seen as human and, and there's no compassion for them. Well, in the Buddhist tradition, you, you, you can even have compassion for those who harm you. And so that's a core part 
And I can say that veterans are digging it and it's, it's really taken as, as is the mindfulness part. And the thing about the original adaptive disclosure book is that it was pretty art. The procedures and the therapy strategies are pretty arcane. You have to pretty artful. You got to be sort of on your toes and, and, and kind of committed to it in a way. And we want, I, I wanted to change that so that there's, there's less dependence on this sort of dramatic unfolding emotional outpouring that you were thinking that someone needs to do. And so what we've shifted to is certainly that can happen, but, but it's driven by letters that are written. So we have veterans write letters that are analogous to the adaptive disclosure in session stuff. So you could write a letter to, to your friend that you loved who died or someone you hurt or someone who hurt you. And then we go through the steps of that I described before, but that, that was therapist driven. This is letter driven. And then the person brings in their letter, which is very hard to do and, and people avoid it, uh, but they bring it in. And in the ideal case, they read it. And then that leads to what we call an experiential sort of like from that, there's some things to process and unfold eyes closed or not. So it's the, the theme here is flexibility. And so that's a component and that helps the clinician because they, they're not responsible for creating this dramatic environment so that, you know, that stuff happens. It's through the letters. It's again, through the patient. We also have greatly expanded this idea of a healing, what we call now a healing and repair plan, but it's consistent with the original assumption, guiding assumption of the approach is that people have to do something indigenously in their lives. They have they need to be doing things in their world, whatever that world is with their, its constraints and harshness, they need to be doing things in their life that are healing and repairing in service of functioning. So that's a real focus. Um, and yeah, those are the key changes. That sounds uh, absolutely wonderful. I'm d definitely going to uh, check that out. I mean, if you can't tolerate your internal experience, you're not going to have any chance of you know, experiencing any kind of self-compassion. So I, I love the different active ingredients that are being feathered into this approach. It's, it's amazing. Dr. Litz, if uh, someone wants to learn more about adaptive disclosure, I mean, we've really just scratched the surface today. If someone wants to learn more, they're interested in training, uh, where would you direct them to go? Yeah, so I would say read the book because it's, it's, it's pretty rich, particularly if you're treating service members and veterans, it, it'll resonate with you. The, the book was kind of a riff on the actual manual we created for the Marine Corps. So um, it's a very technical guide, but there's also rich information that will help people conceptualize their cases. So I would I read the book and think about your cases, basically, um, and broaden your understanding and maybe introduce some flexibility in your work and maybe start to appreciate that, that really the treatment of serious trauma, military trauma is really about rehabilitation, not cure. And... I mean, sometimes people are just great, you know, they're, they're good to go, but it's, it, you know, it's not a, a great expectation to have because of, of so much damage done in a very unique population who, who have uh, difficult lives. So I would say the book, the trial is almost ending when we publish it. Um, so there was an, if you'd search my name, you'll find a, another public publication we did of an original trial where we, we compared adaptive disclosure with cognitive processing therapy and this current trial. So once that's published, we will then do some, we'll write something about the new change agents 
but we need to show that they work first because it's, you know, it's about evidence. And um, yeah, I'm so busy doing research that I have, I don't think about, and nor am I asked, well, I'm asked some, you know, like maybe once a month, someone says, where can I get training or whatever? But a good deal of what happens in the VA is about training and dissemination. I don't have the bandwidth to do training and dissemination. It would require a separate grant and I'd have to hire people. I think that's a great vision. So if we get good, if we get really good evidence in the second thing, I'm very comfortable switching to that modality because I do think it's a very neat approach. Wonderful. Well, we'll leave it there for the moment out of respect for your time. Dr. Litz, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. It was a really fascinating discussion. Again, we just scratched the surface. I really urge clinicians to check out Adaptive Disclosure. As you mentioned, it's a real great teaching tool, has an incredibly nice overview of trauma and different lenses in on trauma. So uh, thank you very much for writing that book. It's fantastic. My pleasure. Good talking to you today. You too. Take good care. Okay. Bye. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.